All right, thanks again, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our church. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. Um, as Chris was saying earlier, we always um, are just grateful you guys are here. If you're visiting for the first time, thanks for uh, being here and worshiping with us. Or uh, maybe it's the case, just kind of checking out Christianity. Uh, or uh, like my old pastor used to say, kicking the tires of Christianity a bit. Or just kind of considering the claims of Christ. Uh, we're glad you're here uh, doing that with us. Um, we are in a series right now in the book of Judges. Uh, sermon series-wise, we're a four, I think it's our fourth sermon of the series, and it's about a 15-weeker, so we'll be done in mid-May or so. I'll recap you if you're brand new to this, uh, but Judges is the seventh book of the Bible, of the Old Testament. If you want to turn there, great, but you don't have to, because uh, this will be on screen here in, in a second. But uh, I, I hope it's been uh, enjoyable for, for you so far. Uh, we've got a lot more to cover, and it gets a lot darker, and in some senses, a lot more grace-filled along the way. Uh, if you remember, we talked about this book as a downward spiral of sin and darkness and despair and hopelessness. But in one sense, God, God loves that stuff because he loves painting himself into a corner so he can show off his power and his grace, his amazingness, his love for us. And so we see that kind of compliment uh, throughout uh, as well. So you'll get a glimpse of that uh, today too and, and then as we, um, we, we get going throughout the series. Uh, but Judges is, uh, again, the seventh book of the Bible. It's, it's a book about judges who are not uh, guys in, or, or gals in uh, black um, robes with gavels, like we, we understand judges to be today in courtrooms, but rather tribal chieftains or rulers or uh, governor-type uh, peoples that also fight military battles uh, for Israel. So think about deliverers or savior figures when you see judges. Otherwise, it'll be pretty confusing. <laughs> You're kind of looking for, where's the courtroom? There is just none throughout the whole book, so... Uh, but it pertains to Israel's history from roughly 1400 to 1000 BC. Uh, just get your kind of timeline bearings there. And it pertains to land acquisition and conquest. So uh, if you know a little bit about that, we talked much more about this a few weeks ago, and I can't recap it all today. But basically, uh, God is in process here. After sin comes into the world, slowly starting to give gifts back to people who don't deserve it, including land where he's going to be and he's going to walk with his people. He says, dwell amongst his people and just be just powerfully present and gracious and provisional to, to his people. So this is a glimpse of God break, as a God of creation, the God who made the world and everything in it, staying committed to sinners like us in lands of big deals. So it's not, this isn't ultimate here. This helps tell the story of Jesus and, and all that. We've been getting to that. We'll get to that today. But it is a glimpse of hope that, that maybe God is going to start to somehow um, not overlook but deal with sin so much where he can dwell with people again. And they can see his face. They can walk with him. And as it says in Genesis 3, in the cool of the day, and they can see his face and dine and bask in his presence and grace in this utopic kind of land or garden, like a new Eden. And so basically this time of history is, is whispering that. That's already happened in the book of Joshua. We, if you've read that book before, now um, land acquisitions continuing to happen in the book of Judges, but also conquest. And then that's the darker side to, to Judges is that God said, as you enter the land, I'm giving it to you, but I, I'm commanding you to drive out wicked nations and peoples from this land that I don't want to stain you with their evil, wicked, religious, and spiritual, and otherwise practices. And so the problem arises when Israel doesn't do that, or in some cases they can't, because they're just greatly outmatched in terms of like weaponry and technology of, of the day. But for the most part, they just fail to, they're disobedient, uh, they're kind of syncretistic in how they're thinking about spirituality, they're saying, well, they're not so bad, and they start to entertain things that are really, really wicked, and things just kind of spiral downwards from there. So it's this clash of like hope and grace and gift and all of that mixed with tons and tons of wickedness and sin, uh, which is like the whole story of the Bible if you're new to it. It's just like in the face of nightmarish things, hellish things, God shows up to, to rescue. So that's where the judges come in. The, the judges are then raised up by God to fully purify, not fully, but continue to purify and drive out these, this wickedness and evil and purify the land and save Israel from being kind of poked in the side, having this thorn in the side of the, this wickedness and, and their, their own idolatrous desires, but these peoples as well who are oppressing them and, and ruling over them very harshly. God raises up judges to save, to militarily free and otherwise and, and give rest in, in the land. And so the cycle we've been saying, this, this repeats I think about, not, I guess not quite 12 times, there are 12 judges, but um, this repeats uh, several times where you see quite explicitly this pattern of Israel committing the sin. God raises up another nation to rule harshly over them to kind of prompt them to the next things, which is uh, to cry out for deliverance. Then God hears, responds in love by raising a judge up to save them. The judge does that. He rules, uh, or she, for several years 
protecting them. And then the judge dies, and when the judge dies, the cycle starts all over again. But even worse, the, sin get, the sins get worse. There's more grievous sin. There's consequence. Uh, there's more exile from God. But then God, again, combats that exile and that wickedness by himself, surprisingly and really unfairly and unjustly saving Israel. Israel does not deserve any of this. Uh, but he's unfairly. So grace is unfair. Remember that. It's not fair. So when God gives us grace and kindness, it's not a response to our goodness. It's in the face of our wickedness. So for sinners, amen. For those that don't, that don't know our sin, it's, it's like, that's not fair. If I like this Christian God. Uh, so our, our, our understanding of sin is a huge piece uh, to this whole thing. Then moving be, past history, though, we've asked this question, how do we read this theologically? What does it mean in, in sort of a Christian way? And how does the Bible read these narratives itself later in the book? And we, we talked about the theological dimension, which is, and this is just the the simple interpretational cheat sheet that, that, so much to say to this, by the way, if you're new, uh, but simple interpretational cheat sheet that flows from how the Bible reads itself and understands Old Testament narrative as a prophecy about Jesus. And so when we talked about this a few weeks ago, these are the quick connections we made. I know this seems fast to you if this is brand new, but the judges basically are images in their role as Savior and Deliverer Jesus is called a deliverer as well, who delivers us from sin. But the judges are, are foreshadows of Christ. Israel, and sometimes the judges themselves, because they get wicked and evil as well, as the book goes on more and more and more, are pictures of us and our sin. Other nations being enemies are reflections or whispers of the greatest of enemies in the Bible, in the biblical story, and in our lives, which is sin, which leads to death. Everybody dies. Death exists because the Bible's true. It tells the story of, of how it came into the world. Sin and death uh, demonic oppression, our hard hearts, you could say, added that list too, but uh, these, are, these are big ones. And then land and rest, just having more of Christ, uh, being where he is and he being with us, uh, God, and then salvation experience. But land and rest are, are synonymous uh, in the Old Testament. So with that said, I encourage you guys in this, if this is new, I encourage you to read the Bible this way because uh, it's, it's the right way. Uh, and, and I say that not because it's some grid that I'm imposing or some other interpreter, more modern interpreter has imposed themselves, but because the Bible itself does this. Jesus reads the Bible this way, Paul, James, John. When they read the Bible, they Jesusify it. They see this one big story about redemption that climaxes in him and for him. So these word picture stories are history. They really happen, but they're also metaphor and allegory and have a spiritual dimension here that God, God loves telling a good story. And the reality is it wouldn't be as comprehensive or complete or beautiful or have as many facets on the diamond of it if we didn't have uh, books like this in, in the Old Testament. So appreciate it for being a book about Jesus. I think that's my biggest uh, hermeneutical or interpretational encouragement for you guys. Okay, so with that said, we're going to read today uh, about this next or second named judge at least. Last week was Othniel. This week we have a little bit longer passage, uh, longer story. It's uh, really exciting. It's also, uh, yeah, it's just, well, you'll see. Uh, but Ehud, the, the left-handed judge. So that might seem super trivial, but it's actually really important. The left-handed judge. It like, makes me giggle all week here, actually. Explain why later. But, the, but you'll see in this passage, it's, it's, they're like painfully trying to show us he's left-handed. It's like, I got it. He's left-handed. Like, why do you have to, what's the big deal? Like, why, why wasn't Othniel the right-handed judge last week? But anyway, uh, this is a big deal. So let's read. Lots going on. Start in verse uh, 12 here, and we'll um, read through it to begin. Verse 12. And the people, so the cycle again begins, like I, I mentioned before, the cycle begins. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit, that's 18 inches or so, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, 
I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in, the, in, the, in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber and behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of, of the cool chamber, and they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country as he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. All right, so life verse here, right? For, for all of us, this is like our life verse passage. No, it's not really. I was joking last night with, with, uh, with some friends. This would be a, quite a passage to kind of like knit cutely, you know, like cro- crochet or something and frame. You know, Eglon was a very fat man. Or like or, uh, to Instagram, you know, with like fields behind it with doves like, and, the, and the fat rolled over the blade because he didn't pull it out, you know, aw, or something. But it's, uh, no, not really. But got to take the whole story, obviously, as one thing, and, and we'll do that. But, okay, what this said, so th- this, is, uh, this is a great story. Uh, it actually, it's, it's, um, it tells us some things about the gospel that are really, really important and really unique, and so we'll get to that. A few initial observations, though, just a couple of things um, we've kind of said so far. I want to make a little bit more clear in this series, and, and that is just to acknowledge that this is messy. And, and I think that's good for us to do as Christian readers of the Bible, or if you're not a Christian yet, just understand this that this is historical narrative and it's messy. And related themes to that, like, if you look at this story, God is not a billion miles away here from suffering. He's actually quite close. Uh, He's not aloof to pain. And in fact, this is the harder truth, but a really good one. In fact, sometimes, as this story is telling us, he's the one who brings us through suffering for the sake of later eradicating it and glorifying his name in our life. We become more thankful people and appreciate him for his power. Because if you notice in the story, he's the one that raises up Eglon. Eglon doesn't raise himself up. God's the one that raises up this king to rule over Israel so that later they would cry out and that later he would respond. So he has a plan for this stuff. And so the, the, the big theme here is that God isn't, this is what we're supposed to see, like a, and this is a literary device. I think it's employed quite well the way it's written, but it can be easy to miss too because it's not like stated. We're supposed to feel this. God is in complete and total control in this story. Complete and total control. Eglon has no power except that which is given him from God. Right? No power here except that which is given from God. It reminded me of uh, this, this story in John 19 when Jesus is on trial right before his crucifixion. He's on trial and, and Pilate, this Roman governor, is asking the questions. Like, who are you? And Jesus is really silent. He doesn't answer a lot of Pilate's questions. And finally, Pilate in frustration kind of says, don't you realize I have power either to crucify you or set you free? And Jesus says this. He does speak up to this. He says, You, Pilate, would have no power or authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. God intended Pilate. God intended Jesus' death. God intended this whole interaction to take place. God intended the suffering for a greater good. Clearly, Jesus is orchestrating his death here. If you you read the story, it's it's classic. And there's so many off-ramps Jesus could have taken to not go through this. You know, um, and the greatest of which maybe just kind of snap his fingers and say, done, enough. But he, but he doesn't. And this is one of those instances where you see this kind of power of Christ and his submission to the will of God, his Father. You know, like the only reason Pilate has authority is because God said, in this moment you will. I am intending it. It's hugely, hugely important for us 
God is the one who has power over Eglon. And God is the one who raises up Ehud to deliver as well. Nothing's happening here outside of of God's control. Now, it doesn't mean that he's responsible for evil. It just means he's above it. And he's guiding all things for his people's good. And yes, that includes suffering. Because all things means all things, from Romans chapter 8 in the New Testament. But it's clear. Here's the thing. God, in Judges 3, and in our lives, is the director, the storyteller, and the main character. Without question. Now, I don't know if that's humbling for you or encouraging or some mix of it. You know, usually it's a mix of it. It's a mix of it for me all the time. Um, but your, your lives are not about you. Not about, it's not about you. It's God. God has a plan, and God, God's in control, and you're his, you're his creation. He made you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. It wasn't an accident. He has a plan. And, and like we see here, it, even, a mix, even intermingling with suffering, interacting sometimes with the evil that surrounds us or that's in our heart, and the suffering to bring about good. You know, and, and that's the key. As we look ahead to Christ here, we'll keep doing this today, but you know, this is all true like we see later in the story when God interacts, so to speak, with evil and suffering and darkness on the cross, intending it to bring about a greater good for the world, salvation from sin. And, and that's, that's all I'm going to say today because that's a whole other sermon, but I think it's an important thing we see in Judges is that don't take for granted that God's involved here in people's lives. You know, do, do you think that we deserve that? He's talking to people. He's responding to people's cries and prayers. He's involved. He's even sovereign over suffering. I mean, think if any of those things weren't true. The God of the Bible would be a terrifying prospect. Terrifying or impotent. But the fact that he's incredibly good, loving, responsive to our prayers that he's in control even over evil and suffering. This isn't like Star Wars God here, two sides of the force. This is like he's over all of it. The fact that all those are true together is the, I mean, just we're not even to the cross yet. I guess we kind of are, but just with his character. This is the best news about God's character that I think you can affirm biblically. Good and in control, perfectly at the exact same time. True in Judges, true for your guys' lives, especially if you're Christians. Uh, but true for your guys' lives and something to just take to the bank emotionally and spiritually throughout the week. All right. Main characters here, before we get into the the main piece here, Israel, just to remind you, Israel's a picture of us. And and they're very passive, remember, in this story. They're basically watching. They enter into battle at the very end, only behind uh, Ehud. We'll talk more about that theme later in Judges, not on time today but they're very passive. Eglon is a picture of sin and death and and demonic oppression and all those things. The the main antagonists of the Bible that uh, Eglon is just kind of a whisper of. The problem, big problem, being separation from God, which you see in this story is is they're exiled from him and they're suffering for that. And then then Ehud is a picture of of Christ. All right, so what I want to do today is review a couple, uh, three actually, Pretty quick, broad gospel themes we've already seen in Judges. Uh, this will be a review for a lot of you, new for some of you, uh, but some broad themes we again see here, but they'll be quicker because we've been there already. Then spend more time on two particular gospel themes or themes, things that just say something about who Christ is and what happened on the cross that are particular to Judges 3, 12 to 30. They don't really come up elsewhere in Judges, so we'll spend a little bit more time on that. But uh, just quick here, a uh, couple quick things. Remember, um, one big thing I've already talked about that you see here as well is that there are two testaments or covenants in the Bible. There's an old one that pertains more to law and covenant key- or commandment keeping uh, that sort of dictated um, how much blessing and or cursing, depends on kind of where they, where they were at, Israel would experience in relationship with God. And then there's a new way based on God's grace and his work completely. I mean, this is, it sounds uh, simple, I know, for those of you that have read the Bible before, but it's amazing how easy it is to read the Bible as though it's one flat-lined covenant, one system, one covenant, and they all blend together. And when we do this, we mix works with grace, and it gets really harmful and damaging. So works are different than grace. Works are contrasted with grace. The idea of we can say, we can sort of um, justify ourselves or keep ourselves in relationship with God based on morality and law-keeping 
it flies in the face of what happens later when Jesus replaces that with a new system. It's called new because it's new. A new system based on grace and his work for us when he died on the cross as, as a perfect man but a human like us. But in our place substitutionarily and in that way remakes us and atones for our sin because he wears it like a yoke around his neck for those six hours on the cross. That's the essence of, of the New Testament. And so here then, when you see both in the story. You see Israel commits sin and there's consequence. There's a conditionality to that. That's Old Testament. God, God is good and there are consequences for sin. We're not good. But the consequences are distance from God and, and death. So you see all of that in the first part. But then you see the New Testament whispered kind of come into the story. And that is Israel cries out. God hears. He responds. Sends Ehud and, and delivers. But it's clear not based on Israel's inherent holiness. It's very, very clear. In, in Judges 3, then, again, it, tell, it tells, everything in this book tells the story, the whole Bible, uh, but Judges 3, again, cyclically underlines it. The, the first more condemnatory part points to the second part, just like the first condemnatory part of the Bible points to the second part. That's where we're now. That's where we're at now. It's all pointing to Christ in that way, setting the stage for him to be the better thing of God. Anyway, so be encouraged in that. Uh, the second is Ehud is, a, relatedly, Ehud's a Christ figure, clearly in this, in this story. What I mean is he's a deliverer in the shadow of the one who would come to do to sin what Ehud did to Eglon. So, namely, drive a sword in the big fat belly of it. You know, but, but Jesus' sword is, an, is not an actual sword, it's his body. And it's the word of his grace. And there's a lot of themes that are coming together here, and, and this might be a bit confusing, but you know, when Jesus is called the Word of God and the Word itself is called the sword or the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6 or Hebrews 4, like all those themes come together. Like the, the sword, the weaponry that Jesus fights with is his bloodied body on the cross and the words of promise and grace and love that he speaks into history. You know, so Revelation 19, when John sees this apoc apocalyptic vision of Jesus at the end, you know, Jesus has a, a sword coming out of his mouth, you know, implying his words are sharp. You know, so, so Judges 3 fits quite well here with a type of victory Jesus wrought over sin and death in that he plunged a dagger of word-based promise into them. You know, so, so you can think of, this is just an example, so you can think of anything here, but when Jesus says to people delivered or oppressed by demons, like, come out of them, come out of her, come out of him, and they, and they do, that's a dagger-type statement. You know, when he says to, to cripples, arise, take your mat and go home, that's a dagger type statement. When he says on the cross, it's finished, that's a dagger type statement in the big fat Eglon-like belly of sin and death and demonic oppression. Praise God. When he says, I love you, when, when the women go to the tomb on that first Easter morning and there's no body and the stone's rolled away and Jesus isn't there because he's alive, that's a dagger statement into the belly of hopelessness into the belly of sin, into the belly of all of our worst nightmares, into the belly of death, especially on Easter morning, belly of death. Those are dagger-type statements. When he speaks, though, when he acts, this is what we should be thinking. He's a better Ehud in that regard because he's fighting much, much stronger wicked kings. And so then the third thing is, sin is killed by God's grace, not by our works. And so in other words, by Ehud, not by Israel. By Jesus, not by us. And, and so it, it's a strange thing, but the center of the Christian faith, so think bullseye, the center of the Christian faith is much closer to Ehud driving an 18-inch dagger into the belly of a fat, wicked king than it is to the idea of us keeping God's commandments. You know, what you think about when you think about the, the, the center of the gospel is a pretty big deal. It matters a ton. Let me say it again. The center of the Christian faith is much closer to this picture of Ehud driving an 18-inch dagger into the belly of a fat, wicked king than it is the idea of us keeping God's commandments. This is really important to understand. Like my old pastor said, put that in your theological pipe and smoke that sucker because that's, really, that's a hard one. But it determines what we think about when we think about the gospel. You know, was, was Ehud's deliverance contingent on Israel's morality? No, but love. 
You know, and so if, if the center for us is love God, love people, for example, we've talked about this before a lot. Uh, I mean, lovingly, I think what this is, this is saying in love, you're wrong. In love, that's actually not the answer. In love, it's an invitation to shift, shift away from that way of thinking. It's that's the essence of Christianity to stuff like this. Um, this type of visceralness in battle and grace and love. God cares. And our sin's way bigger than we think. I mentioned first service. It's kind of like sometimes we're before Mount Everest and we pick a stone up and the mountain's right here. We're not looking at it, but the stone, we're like, okay, yeah, that's how bad I am. It's like right there. Like, yeah, you know, it's pretty big, I guess. Um, but we have no idea. It's like as big as the mountain. Like our sin's like, we're like, what? You know, and I think, I think God just shows us the stone sometimes when there's a mountain because if he showed us the mountain, we'd like curl over in the fetal position and never get up again or just die or something, you know, but... Um, but there's grace, there's grace in that. And so we need visceralness. If our sin is small, Ehud's actions here are an overreaction, a kind of taboo, ew, gross thing. If our sin is Mount Everest, we actually welcome this with open arms uh, because, like, we need that type of victory Um, because my my sin rules over me by myself. Uh, Like Israel served Eglon, Without Christ, I serve my sin. It's my master. It's my master. It has me uh, in chains, in ankles and and wrists, in a blindfold, in a prison, you know, uh, treated harshly. I serve my sin. You serve your sin without Christ. And and so Christ then, we need this type of liberation. Not an Ehud who went and like, you know, there is like some kind of, uh, what do you call that, um, when you just talk to someone from another nation, what do you call that? Um, what's the word? No, like when, when the politicians do this, they go and they just talk and they don't, what do you, what do you call that? It's so vague. What's that? No, filibuster. <laughs> <laughs> when you just, what's that? Diplomacy, thank you. I knew it was the D word. Yeah, diplomacy. You know, this is not a diplomat, right? Jesus is not a diplomat. He doesn't like, you know, just talk to your sin and figure it out. You know, he, he destroys it. Okay. Anyway, that would have been better if I would have known the word. There would have been a little more power there or something. <laughs> I was like, that was, that mo- there's a right moment there. I just totally lost it. But anyway, okay. Three things. Let's go on to the, t- the two uh, more specific particular things, though, uh, that will play off the first three for sure. But the first is um, God putting our sin and accusers to shame. So let me, let me read again verses 23 and following. So this is, again, the hilt of the blade went in after, sorry, after the blade. The fat closed over the blade. He didn't pull the sword out. And then it says the dung came out. 23. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came. And when, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself. He's going to the bathroom in the cool, in the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took a key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. So, you can never say God doesn't like dramatic intrigue and twists after a thing like this. So, all right, anyway. So basically here, and I, and I share this again to point at this part of the story that didn't have to be included. You know, we ask, well, why is this here? What's God's intention? And really, I think as you describe it and observe it, what we're seeing are pictures of shame, embarrassment. I mean, there's like dung mentioned. There's um, embarrassment mentioned. There's smells. The servants are smelling things. They're like, oh man, this is, you know, there's shame. And there's powerlessness being exposed of this otherwise strong king who had ruled for so long and was probably very full of himself. So powerlessness is being exposed. But all that under the umbrella of the idea of shame. It's a very shameful thing that God is allowing Ehud to sort of instigate here with his at this type of deliverance that he's, that he's doing. So here's the thing. Theologically then, this, this is the connection. For us, associated with salvation, so when God saves us from things, from ourselves, from sin, associated with that is the erasure and displacement of our shame. So when we talk about what Jesus did for us, there's a lot of things to say, like on the cross, I mean. What's he doing there when he's dying? And so part of it is he, he's erasing and displacing our shame. And so this is a little bit different from guilt. Uh, some cultures are more guilt-focused, kind of like Western cultures. Um, 
Some are more shame-focused, uh, like Eastern cultures, but I think like the world's becoming both now a little bit more. It's more in- integrated. But, um, but the Bible talks about both. Like Jesus addresses guilt and, and shame. So the important thing for us then, people like us who have shame before God and others, you know, when we, when we think about sinning or, um, you know, and I think one of the biggest sins that um, I've seen this play out, not just in my life, but other people's lives as a pastor, is like, uh, like one sin is really shameful is sexual sin. And people just don't want to confess that because they feel just full of shame over, I feel addicted. Like, I, sh- I know I shouldn't look at that. It's super disgusting and fake and um, just gross. And, and I feel, you know, all, all this stuff that's perverted. I feel, I feel full of shame saying to anybody that, that, I've done, that I've looked at porn or gone further than that. Or even just like in our minds, like there's shame associated. So, but you could, put, you could plug in any sin there. I'm just saying um, that, that that's a big shame-based sin. Or the other side of like being abused. So some of you, maybe many of you, have been in some way abused or sort of like the victims of someone else's or you've felt the brunt of someone's sin. You've been sinned against. And there's shame for that. So it, it's on both sides. We think about either sides or both though. The way that shame is healed is through acceptance and love. And there's more to say here, but we'll start with this. Acceptance and love. In other words, saying, saying to someone, and I mean meaning it when you say it, and I'm saying this as a Christian pastor in a context of a church, so saying this spiritually, looking at someone full of shame and saying, it really is okay. Your, your sin and what happened to you does not define you. That's not who you are. Like looking at someone, and say, that's how shame starts to loosen its grip a bit uh, on our hearts, as well as, uh, in terms of like how shame is loosened, uh, shame being redirected or shared by another person. And so uh, it's kind of like a, a kid being bullied by, by someone, but someone else stepping in to protect that, that kid, then the protector being bullied right alongside the first kid. But for the first person, so you kind of picture that happening, or if you've experienced that on either side, for the first person... Shame that's kind of spread out a bit or shared shame helps to depersonalize it. You know, so it, it come across like in other ways in the church like, hey, we're in this together, you know, or I've done worse, you know, you're accepted here. You're not, you're not like bottom of the totem pole spiritually because at the foot of the cross, the ground is level this way. There, there are no good or bad people in Christ. There are just Christians, there are no good or bad people. When you're in Christ in the church, there's no like high moral and low moral people. There's no partiality. There's just Christ. So we, we you know, we got to believe that and, and apply it. And so part of this is understanding what shame is if you have shame. Part of this is like you can be an agent of healing for people in this church if you respond in a gospel way. You can be what God uses to, to address shame. And so keep thinking about that as we, as we keep talking. But here's the thing. Everything I just said, Jesus does all of that for us on the cross. All of it and more on, on higher levels. Here's what I mean. He, he forgives and he accepts. In Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, when this is kind of mid-parable here, but Jesus says, the son sins, he's full of shame, and he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But here's that great conjunction in the Bible sometimes. But God or but the father, said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. If you believe in Jesus and you have shame over something that has happened to you or you've done, this is God's response. That's his response to you. And you can have this response too on a human-to-human level as well inside the church when you invite and accept and kind of absorb confession in a way as well. And forgive people that have offended you. So that's the first piece. The second piece is that he redirects our shame. Meaning he puts sin and demons to open shame. Colossians 2.15 says, God disarmed the rulers and authorities, so demons who accuse us. And he put them to open shame. So interesting phrase, open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. So it's a complicated verse here, but basically what this is saying is, Jesus' death 
takes away demons' power to accuse us and shame us of what we've done. You know, so demons can't say anymore, well, good Christians don't do that, or I can't believe you did that, or I can't believe you have that perverted thought in your mind. They can't say that and in that way drive us from Christ because our salvation's not based on it anymore, and Christ died for it, and he took it away. He wore it on the cross. And so their power to accuse is stripped, but it also puts them to shame by exposing their failure and weakness. In other words, demons didn't win. Sin didn't win. See, it was a redirection. And so it says here, he puts them to open shame. The shame's taken away from us. Even though we have shame, it's like, oh, now it's more over there. It's actually an interesting phrase. You may have saw this, a literary device used in, in Judges 3 where it says, Ehud passed by the idols. Did you guys notice that a couple of times? Where he went to the idols, passed by, turned back by the idols. So these are the gods of the land, the gods of the Moabites. Turned back, and then at one point, he like escaped and ran by them. And it's a cool literary device because basically it's saying, this like sneaky spy, this left-handed judge snuck in and just slayed your king, and now your gods can't do anything about it. They just like watch him go. Isn't that cool? It's like a cool literary device saying, powerless, impotent, weak, dumb, mute, all those things. That's the gods of the Moabites, you know? And so it's the same here. Like, when Christ died, he disarmed our accusers that bring us shame, and he redirects it onto them by showing their weakness. And then third, association and absorption. So in Luke 18, it said, Jesus will be delivered over to the Gentiles. This is actually him speaking about himself. And will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. So again, this, this, just, this goes back to the idea that if you have shame for what you've done and what's been done to you, what the gospel says is he was treated more shamefully and he associated with you. He's not ashamed to be called your God. You know, so, so when he's treated more shamefully, think of it like that an interpersonal human-to-human thing, it would depersonalize, right? It would spread it out a little bit. And the focus would be more on Jesus than, or the shame shamed person over here maybe than the shame person here. It, it would be shared, would be advocated for, associated with. But at the end of the day, Luke, the Bible says part of what Jesus experienced, he was shamed. He was naked, stripped, he was mocked, he was humiliated, absolutely humiliated, humiliated on that cross all the way to death, died the worst of deaths, all this for us because he loved us in our place as a human being. But in the process of that, was shamefully treated. And the more we reflect on that, the easier it is to be free of our shame. You know, it, because it's, you know, God is associating with it. He's not aloof to it. He enters in and sort of takes it. He destroys it, but also takes it. In the process, he forgives and accepts. So many la- beautiful layers to this. But he's doing all of that at once when he says it is finished on the cross, dying for sinners. All right, this other piece is, um, our second piece, second particular gospel theme is unsuspecting salvation. So uh, in, verse, in verse 15, it's clear, and actually later too, Ehud is a left-handed man. So I was laughing with Peter. Yeah, I kind of mentioned this before, didn't I? But anyway, it's just so funny that it's, you know, the way he's described is, what does it say here? Again, it's God raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. You know, this is a left-handed, like you guys get that feeling when you read it, like, gosh, I got it. You know, like what's the, what's the deal? A left-handed man, very, very important. Okay, anyway, that's just, a le- okay. So, so what, me- what this means is we, is we apply the gospel to this idea, you know, and I put up here what I, what I think this is saying, but I think what it means is the gospel is, is unsuspecting. And so, so for, for Ehud here, it would be advantageous. You know, if he was a left-handed guy, so most people are right-handed, they'd wear their swords on their left hip then, and, but, you know, he didn't have one there, and so it would have been hidden on this left side. On his right side, he would, he would have pulled it out and at the right time just stabbed him when he said, I have a message from God. It, it th- sounds like Monty Python to me or something, doesn't it? <laughs> a little bit. I have a message, message from God. Anyway, so he does that. 
And so some people think he was maybe even handicapped in the right arm. So basically, it, it, that's why he couldn't use it. So it was this hand, potentially handicapped guy, left-handed. This is probably why the servants let him in at all, to be alone. It would have been, it's, it's a huge foible on their part. And the king's exposing an unwise move. Let's just let this kind of sneaky guy, yeah, be alone with the king, you know, for a while. It was probably because he was very weak, handicapped, left-handed, no sign of a sword where it usually is. And they're like, you know, whatever. I know it's still kind of dumb when you think about it in their terms, but that's probably why they let him in. But so it was unsuspecting is the idea. See, left-handed think unsuspecting uh, dagger, literally. So th- then again, the question is, what does this tell us about the nature of Christ's death? Again, it's that it, that it too was unsuspecting or sneaky, and no one really knew it was coming in the way that it did. And so I think this is a, a cool aspect about the gospel too, is that when you know, the whole world was looking elsewhere for salvation, you know, on the left leg where it usually is. God sneakily inserted the knife left-handedly by sending his son to become handicapped on the cross and to die for us. It's kind of like the, the fellowship of the ring when they decided, the fellowship decided to send a hobbit to like destroy this, this ring, you know, single-handedly by himself, if you know the story or, or whatever. It's like, it's, their advantage, one of their advantages was surprise the whole time and the whole story is that, you know, Sauron has no idea, you know, and he, the whole time is like they're thinking, oh, does he know yet? And he do- clearly doesn't. And he's not suspecting a hobbit uh, to at least deliver in the way that, that he does. So unsuspecting. 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 120 says about the cross, this is a New Testament letter to a New Testament church saying the, the gospel is surprising and in this way. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? In, in the face of the cross. So staring at Jesus on that cross, here's the questions. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You know, I think when, basically what he's saying, this is part of a larger argument. I encourage you to go back and read all of chapter one. But when we look at the cross, I mean, there's, it's so cool because we, we, think, we think we know. We think we're good enough. We think we understand. And then God swoops in with this, and no one saw it coming. You know, there's no one at the, at the foot of the cross saying, yep, down to the second, nailed it. You know, like I wrote a book three years ago saying, you know, sign of the times. Who's that guy that writes all those books that we, that's been? Yeah, I see. Here it is again. I have no idea what I'm talking about, so. Um, you know, those prophecy books. So anyway, but predicting, predicting things that we have no idea, you know, and so I think that's a huge piece. Where, where's the debater? Where's the intelligent one? Where's the one who could, who could have predicted this? And basically, the answer is implied nowhere. They're nowhere around because if we're thinking intelligently, right, or thinking about our own strength or our power, our abilities, our inherent sense of goodness, we're a million miles from this. That's the idea. No one in their humility is waiting for God to do everything. Everyone in their pride is waiting for a pat on the back. And so the cross comes in and makes foolish the wisdom of the world. Because wisdom of the world saying strength wins, God says weakness and losing is the thing I want to see. I want to see you lose and weak, uh, in a weak state, fall on your face spiritually so that I'm the only one there who's, who's left to get you. That's what this says. So see, the gospel is a surprise for us. Not something we find or, or anything like that because, because saying, I knew it, see, here, here it is, I told you it was coming, is close to saying, I can do it, see? Boasting even in the prediction of Jesus' death in the first century would have been boasting in the self. So it's important for God to surprise us with his son so that it's clear it's by grace we're saved, not by works. And so again, though the world was looking at the, at the right hand of their own moral effort to be saved, Jesus came in with a left-handed dagger of salvation. Unsuspecting, surprising, but full of grace and love so that no one can boast in their moral efforts. The cross says, at, at the best, smartest, and most moral of people, not enough. None of that's enough. That's what this says. Otherwise, this is foolishness. 
It's foolishness to the world because they're operating in a different plane. But to God and Christians, this is, to those who are being saved, it's, this is the power of God. It's the strength of God for us weak people. Now, I've said before, becoming a Christian sometimes is like running a foot race with friends and family. Winning, then looking back and realizing everyone else just pulled up and let you win. It's a humbling thing. But movement from, I did it, I did it, to, I didn't do it at all. You know, it's movement from self to grace. Self to God's love. Self to that. To him. And this is, this is not just your conversion, guys, uh, for those of you Christians. This is every day. Every single day. This is that, that movement we have to, we have to make. So, so what does this mean then? Um, I mean, all this is basically just, as we twist it in the light, it's, it's just telling us more about what the gospel is and what Jesus did for us. Um, you know, part of this is, in, is informational, part of this is more subjective and, and powerful for us, like the shame piece. But what does this mean for us? It, it doesn't mean, um, you know, become left-handed or something. You know, that's a straw man, I know, but whatever. Become left-handed. I actually did read this one Bible once. It, had a, it was a terrible Bible. I'm not even tell you what it was. I don't want you to get it. Because so. it just terrible uh, little application notes um, in it. And it was this passage. And you know some Bibles have those application notes at the bottom, like commentaries? And it said, uh, it said this. It said, the point, or this story means, that's what it said. So this story means this, colon, that if God can use a left-handed person here, he can use anybody. There you go, Alex. Take that one home. Just, 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 just ride that one all week. No, I'm just kidding. If God can use a left-handed person, he can, he can do anything. That's just dumb. You know, that's not... Because, I'm going to say that because it's not in the Bible. Like the Bible's not saying that, right? It doesn't read itself that way, and we could go on about that. But I'm just saying part of, part of the deal is here is have your antennas up for bad theology and for interpretive notes about things that... Um, are void of Christ. If the left-handedness has anything to do with, like, weakness, it's about Christ, primarily, you know? At least in us, maybe secondarily, but it's not a moral lesson. It's about salvation anyway. So, um, okay, that's just an aside. But here's what I think it means, though. It means Christ. And so as we talk about this stuff, um, if all this is true, it means Jesus has taken our shame. He really has. He's redirected it towards your sin and Satan. He's bore it in himself on the cross. He's accepted, he's forgiven, and advocated for you. You know, all of that. And in that way, again, and, and he's killed your sin. You know, so it, it's lying dead. Your sin is lying dead on the floor like Eglon in shame. So shame is on your sin now, not on you. This is the cool exchange here with this. You know, I'd encourage you guys in this. If you feel under the thumb of sin, and you don't now, you will. Um, that's like the journey of every human, Christian human. But like, um, it, it, you will. The, the thought process should be stories like this versus um, your inherent sense of morality because you won't be able to do it. Willpower is not enough. Do, so here's the question. Do you believe that, that every bad thing you've ever done or thought, every sin, every harm towards someone else or offense to God or that you feel imprisoned by currently, is actually, in a very real sense, lying dead on the floor like Eglon. That's where power comes from. Knowing that by grace you're saved, so that, like in Romans, sin's no longer your master. Jesus is. So it's, it's more of a thought process about what's true when it comes to Christ and the gospel. Not how much you can try harder, though God obviously uses our, uses our choices and our abilities too, that's another thing. But Chances are, if, if we're not able to overcome sin, we might be thinking too little of stories like this and too much of stories like, or reading notes too much that say, you know, God can use you, you, you know, because you're, left, you're a left-handed person. Oh, you know what? You're weak and God can, God can use you too. It's like, oh, great, you know, go ahead and just, just do it. Just try harder. It's like, we're probably listening too much to notes like that and Bible passages about, or at least we think that mean this about that than we are about Christ in passages like this. So the, the invitation is, do you guys believe this? And, and, and here's what I just want to affirm for you guys on the shame piece as well. But as you read this and look at this is, do you believe it? But if all this is true, then in Christ, if you believe in him, you really are okay. You're okay. 
There's nothing you can do to make him love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. Because if you believe in Jesus, you're in Christ and all that he did. It's not based on anything that you've ever done or will do. And so you really are okay with guilt. If you have shame, you're okay. And hopefully the church is a place to be a reflection of that, but it will never be perfect. But with Christ, it's always perfect. He actually wore your shame on the cross. Isn't that amazingly loving and powerful? He redirected it. He took it on. He, can, he knows what you're going through now because he became a human being and became shamed. So you really are okay with Christ. And if you're not in him yet, then what this says is actually right now you're not okay. You're not okay outside of Christ. But with him, if you just trust him and believe in him, you can be okay too. Saved, forgiven, advocated for by the king of the universe. Your sin killed. Your doubts and nightmares and fears all addressed. You know? And so that now in the New Testament, all that's left is Christ's body on that cross. That's the sword. That's the ultimate cubit-long dagger that's been driven into the heart of our sin and death and left there. See? Left there. It's not a single thing and taken out. It's left there. The dagger's still in your, is still in your sin. See, it, it, it's enough. That's why I think the left there is gross, but also really powerful. You know, Christ's death is sufficient. It's, it, it's, it's still penetrating sin for us every day. Uh, even sometimes unbeknownst to us, but to our, for our joy and for God's kind of power and glory and for our thankfulness and worship. But anyway, let me, let me pray for us. God, thanks so much uh, for this passage uh, that tells us about Jesus uh, from kind of an unsuspecting, sort of weird way, but it really is about you. It's about your characteristics. You're good and in control. And it's about your power. It's about your willingness to associate with our shame, to destroy it, but also to wear it. And also um, that salvation's unsuspecting, so we can't boast. Like, if we're saved, it's because you sort of swooped in and, and worked in our heart. To, uh, to see the things of the gospel in the right way and all that stuff. So anyway, God, thank you for this passage. Help us to, to mull it over this week and to think about you more accurately and our sin more bigly uh, so that you get more beautiful. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we respond with one last song. Your church by sharing the sweetest news of in the universe in this passage about the ultimate Ehud with more people. Uh, in whatever way you'd like us to show it or say it, God, um, build the church through conversions, through baptisms. Uh, we pray for more of that. Uh, help, help our witness uh, this week. Uh, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.